Good morning. I'm Barb Boylan. And as always, I'm very privileged to open up the word with you today. We're in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if, if everyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not, who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been in this book for some time now. I hope it's been an encouragement to you as we've been moving our way through this book. And several times as we've uh, worked our way chapter by chapter through this book, we've made comments where we've talked about the profound and insightful honesty of the Bible. The fact that the Bible actually sees the world the way that it is, it sees our situations, our circumstances, our experiences through a very realistic lens. It doesn't paint a rosy picture. It doesn't pretend that everything's good. It paints things as they ought to be. And I came across a quote this week that I thought was helpful along these lines. An author speaking about this idea of the honesty of the Bible said this, I don't need vacuous religious platitudes that delude me into thinking that life is better than it really is. I don't need a form of faith that requires that I deny pieces of reality in order to have peace of heart. I don't want to be in the position of having to close my eyes to things and make believe they are not there. If it is anything, the Bible is honest. The blood, guts, and dirt of the fallen world stain its every page filled with brutally honest stories of flawed people and marked with stinging analyses of the brokenness of the world. The Bible requires us all to be honest as well. And so as we think about this idea that what the Bible is actually inviting you into is an honest look into your own life, into your own circumstances, into the world around us, the implicit question that we need to ask ourselves as we look at the Word today is this, are you being honest about your own life? Are you being honest about the circumstances around you, what scares you, what terrifies you, what angers you, what's ups what upsets you, what you're finding your hope and your happiness and your peace in? 
Do you actually have eyes to see your life for what it is, or is your tendency to live in the poles? To live in such a depressed state, ignorant of the reality of God, His presence, and His goodness, that it hardly makes a difference what happens in your life. You've kind of resigned yourself to failure. Or on the other hand, looking at things through such a positive worldview that you have to choose to ignore things that are inherently broken in your own life. See, if the Bible is nothing more to you than a book of fairy tales or a book of virtues, if it's just an academic textbook or a religious rule book, then there is coming a point in your life, if you're not already there already, in which its usefulness to you will run out. Because there comes a time in every person's life where you will be mercilessly, to borrow a phrase, mugged by reality. A time where the Bible, for all of its captivating stories and moral lessons and beautiful poetry, will fall flat and useless in your life if you don't understand its ultimate purpose which is to reveal to fallen humanity, that's you and I and the world in which we live, the wonder and the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of a Savior named Jesus who came to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. As Jesus was saying goodbye to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 18, he spoke to this exact reality when he said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And it's that exact theme that Peter addresses in this text. How should Christians think about suffering, and in particular, the persecution that they may experience? And in verse 12 of this text, we find Peter addressing with remarkable clarity something that we in this moment, and I mean for us today, in the world in which we live, in the country in which we live, are desperately in need of hearing. So look with me, if you would, at verse 12, where Peter starts with this instruction. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now let's just stop there for a minute and ask the obvious question, which is this. Why does Peter tell us not to be surprised at our suffering? And the inherent reason that he gives that instruction is because our natural tendency must be to view suffering as an abnormality, as something that's not usual to the experience of humanity. And in part, we already answered that question with Jesus' statement from John 15, but there's even more behind this instruction. Instruction, by the way, that you don't have to be a Christian inherently to understand. Because the truth of the matter is, there's a sense in which we all should feel it's out of place to suffer because suffering was not a natural part of God's created order. When you think back to the beginning of creation, you think back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when God creates everything that we see, everything around us, all of the galaxies, the distant world, everything that he sets into motion, and you find this particular moment where he speaks into creation, humanity. First creating Adam and then creating Eve, one for another in perfect unity and harmony and relationship with him. And the Old Testament Hebrew word that's still a word that's in use today in modern Israel is the word shalom. 
On its face, that word simply means peace. But in the Old Testament context, what that word shalom means is the fabric of creation, the interwovenness of everything that exists, the perfect creation of God, the spiritual world and the physical world, the emotional outset of our heart, the working of our mind, the functioning of our body in God's created order was intended to be perfect and interwoven, everything interdependent and perfectly functioning. And you find that picture in the Garden of Eden. You find this place where man is in perfect communion with God, unbroken relationship, friendship, deep intimacy, and not only intimacy with God, but intimacy one to another. Adam and Eve, a married couple with no brokenness in their relationship. No backbiting, no harsh language, no arguments, no difficulties, no sin to ruin what God intended. But when sin entered into the world, when Adam and Eve defied God's instruction and ate of the fruit of good and evil, in that particular moment, they declared that they knew better than God what was best for their lives. And in that moment, the fabric, the shalom of God's creation was torn. What was perfectly interwoven and perfectly interdependent was now ripped beyond repair in any human terms. What God had intended for us to enjoy together was suddenly broken because of the sinfulness of mankind. And so, in a sense, when we see or experience suffering in this world, it feels out of place. There's something about it that we just know isn't right. And if you want the most stark example of that, all you have to do is attend a funeral. Because there's a moment when you're at a funeral where it becomes so absurd to realize that somebody who is breathing and living and with us is now gone. And regardless of your religious worldview, your belief in a God or not, regardless of your perspective of, of anything, there is something in that moment that does not sit right in our hearts and minds. It's what's in the words of one author, Eden remaining as a lingering echo. We know we were created for something different. And because of the brokenness of this world, suffering has now become the new normal. But like all new normals, the, the memory of the old still exists. The realization that there's something else still still bounces around in our minds. So within our context, and in particular, outside of just everyone's experience in the world, Christians in particular can also feel that suffering is out of place. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. In our country, I mean, you think about our own history, for the bulk of our history as a nation, it's largely been acceptable to hold to Christianity as our faith. And until very recently, most non-Christians have held to very traditional Christian values and morals, even if they were completely unaware that those morals were rooted in Christianity. But that tide has begun to turn. And each day that passes, it becomes more and more apparent that a Christian worldview is not in concert with the world around us. And as we talked about two weeks ago, biblical faithfulness in that climate will inevitably listen to that word, inevitably lead to suffering. And I realize that sounds like doomsday conversation, but do you realize that for brothers and sisters around the world, that is their normal day-to-day -day experience now? We are the outlier in that equation. 
not them. And much like these first century Christians, we need the reminder from Peter not to be surprised when we suffer as a result of our faith. And this will undoubtedly be a hard lesson for all of us. It will be a hard lesson for our generation because many people have presumed that simply by dint of their Christian identity, their experience of suffering will be something less than profound. Many people hold that because of very poor theology that's been preached in churches for decades, where people have begun to buy into a pseudo-Christianity peddled by prosperity gospel charlatans, promoting an idea that has more in common with karma than with the Bible. If I do the right things and I live the right way and I give money to the church, then I won't experience suffering. God owes me. Others know better than to presume that somehow God is indebted to you and owes you a comfortable and an easy life, but their view of suffering can often be just as flawed because they presume that what the Bible promotes is a stiff upper-lipped Christianity. That if you're a really good Christian, then you will experience and walk through hardship, but you'll do it without a shred of doubt or without the shedding of a tear. And that anything less than that is a failure of your faith. And while on the surface that can seem valorous to some people, it again misses the point. See, the reason we focus so much on suffering throughout this book is because the Bible views it as a very real thing. And that's important for you and I to understand because if we don't understand the true nature of suffering, we run the risk of being rather trite about our suffering or the suffering of others. See, suffering for one's faith isn't an academic test or a thought experiment. According to this passage, it is a fiery trial. It is painful, it is uncomfortable, it is unwanted. And so if we view persecution as anything less than the hardship that it actually is, we will be unable to rely on God for our resolve or to endure it or to care well for others in the midst of it. And so Peter starts with what seems like this obvious instruction, don't be surprised when you begin to experience these fiery trials, they're going to come. But then look what he says in verse 13 because his solution is just as unexpected. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that verse is absolutely packed with meaning and we could spend an entire sermon just talking about that verse because Peter here doesn't stop with simply informing us that persecution is going to come. But what he actually does is he says, understand that this living hope that he's been speaking about for the last three chapters has a very real function in our lives. And that living hope that he offers is that persecution, when it comes, actually works to accomplish real progress in our lives. We tend to view persecution or suffering as something that must simply be endured for the sake of endurance. Or depending on your family structure and your upbringing, you may just have the idea that, well, suffering builds character. But what God does in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution is far more profound than that. And he breaks it up really in three distinct pieces. Here's the first one. He says this, persecution unifies us with Christ's past suffering. 
persecution unifies us with Christ's past suffering. Look what he says, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And when Peter says that, he is echoing a theme that repeats itself in the New Testament, perhaps expressed most explicitly by Paul in the book of Philippians, where in chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writes this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I don't know if you noticed the language that Paul just used there, but he didn't just say that suffering is going to come. He says it's actually been granted to you. It's been given to you. It is a privilege. Now, in what way could we possibly consider persecution a privilege? Because it seems like the opposite of any other privilege we've ever experienced in our lives. It's a hard one for us to even wrap our minds around, but here's ultimately what Paul is intimating. He's saying this, you're telling me that I get to suffer for Christ? That there's actually a way in which I can endure something the way that Christ endured suffering for me? I get to experience suffering on behalf of the one who suffered infinitely for me? And Paul's going to say that inherently that's a privilege. That it's a privilege to endure suffering for Christ because he is the one who endured unbelievable suffering for you and I. It's the very thing that Peter was going to experience and demonstrate later in his own life when history tells us that he was crucified upside down on a cross. And that the reason he was crucified upside down is because in the midst of his crucifixion, he told his persecutors, I don't deserve to suffer the same way my Savior did, so please crucify me upside down. Now that's not just valor or bravery speaking. That is the privilege of suffering at work in your own heart that in a unique spiritual way that is hard to codify and hard to explain, persecution unifies us with Christ's past suffering. But not only his past suffering, number two, persecution unifies us with Christ's future glory. His past suffering as well as his future glory. Look what he says as he continues in that verse. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, what he's saying to you and I is this. Since you're enduring hardship like Jesus did on behalf of Jesus, you can be sure that you're going to experience the same reward as Jesus. So even in this moment, one of the constant criticisms of Christianity is that due to our conviction of biblical truth, we will be on the wrong side of history. And that language is used day in and day out on all kinds of cultural debates and moral discussions. The discussion of the constant progress and moving forward of history and the constant movement and transformation of what have been considered moral lines or traditional lines. And the discussion often is, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? But that 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 history will somehow stand as a judge that future generations will look back at us as being silly or antiquated or even bigoted. But the reminder here is that God is the ultimate judge. 
But there is a day coming when Christ's full glory will be revealed for all the world to see. And that in that moment, the revelation of His glory will be a declaration that there is a greater judge than the peers of our culture. That there is a God of truth who stands outside of time, whose moral standard never changes, whose holiness never morphs, whose expectation of what is right and wrong never shifts throughout the history of time, and who declares once and for all what is true and right and valuable and lasting. See, Peter's promise for us is this, so long as you are on the right side of God, you will never be on the wrong side of history. And in the words of one commentator, the Christian who stands fast and suffers for the gospel is responding to an eternal reality that will outlast death and even history itself. The joy prompted by recognizing this is but a foretaste of the joy that Christians will experience when the glory of Christ is fully and universally revealed and their faith is vindicated at last. And so what Dave addressed last week, what if the point of all the Bible's prophecies and all the discussion of the future and all the discussion of the end times is not primarily so that Christians can identify where exactly they stand in the last days, but rather to instill a confidence that in the end, Christ wins. That he returns as the one true judge and the one true king. That when you are on the right side of God, you will never, ever be on the wrong side of history. And we will get to stand alongside him. So in persecution, we're united to Jesus in his past suffering. We're united to him in his future glory. And persecution, number three, reminds us of our unity with Jesus in this present moment. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us, because the understanding that there's a theological connection to what Jesus Christ has done in the past makes sense to us on some level or another, or at least it can make sense to us. And the idea that there's a future coming in which we'll be reunited with Christ and where, in fact, the whole world will become aware of the glory and the wonder and the majesty of Christ, we can picture that and we can imagine it. But what about right now? What about suffering that happens right now? What about persecution that happens right now? How are we supposed to handle that? The persecution reminds the believer that that we are unified with Jesus in this present moment. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are, present tense, blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And ultimately, here's what he's saying. One of the benefits of persecution, to use a strange phrase, one of the benefits of persecution is that it assures us of our sonship. I remember when my oldest son was born, one of the most unique and miraculous experiences of my life. I remember being in the room and I remember seeing him for the very first time and immediately looking at him and just being so shocked and thrown off. I mean, you know a baby's coming. You know what you're going to name him. You can imagine what life's going to be like. But I remember seeing him and going, oh, he's got blonde hair. I didn't expect that. 
you know, counting his fingers and his toes and all those kinds of things, and the nurse picks him up, and they take him over the table, and they check him out and make sure he's okay. And one of the very first things that they did in the hospital is they, they took a, a little tag, and they wrapped it around his ankle and tied it off, and they wrote our names on it. And for the next week or so, as, as Leo was in the hospital, he was in there a little bit longer because he was born early. Um, as he was in the hospital, we would go over to the nursery and we'd see him. And of course, we recognized him right away because his face was tattooed in our minds. But there was that little tag on his ankle. Why? So that even if he was separated from us, people would know who he belonged to. And I think likewise for Christians... There are moments in our life where by virtue of our experience, we begin to wonder if we actually belong to God. Am I actually a son? Am I actually a daughter? If God loved me, would I be experiencing these things? Would he allow me to go through this for him? If I'm suffering, does that mean I've done something wrong? Is God punishing me? And the assurance is when you suffer for your faith, it's God pointing you to that tag reminding you to whom you belong. Except unlike some mere earthly name tag, the mark that you've been given is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. That at your salvation, the Holy Spirit indwelled you, that He lives within you, that He convicts you and He encourages you and He challenges you and He matures you and He sanctifies you and He works in you. He gives testimony to the fact that you belong to God. He prays for you and in you is what Romans chapter 8 says. With groanings too deep for words, that's the way He prays for you. He bears testament in your spirit to the fact that you are a son or a daughter of the Almighty God. And this was part of the promise of Jesus in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 25, when he says this. He says, here's why I'm telling you all of these things about the suffering that you're going to experience, about the persecution that you're going to go through. I've spoken to you about this while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, what he says is this Holy Spirit brings a peace, not a peace that the world can afford or that the world can grant you or that the world can offer you, not a temporary peace or a passing peace, but a peace that surpasses understanding, the Prince of Peace indwelling you through the Holy Spirit. See, the assurance of this text is that you can choose to ignore the Bible. You can choose to, to abandon biblical conviction and be embraced and loved by the world. You can live in that temporary peace, that temporary armistice with the world, but that momentary acceptance comes at a great cost. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 said this, woe to you. In other words, watch out, be warned. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
It is amazing whenever you see somebody who's historically been someone who stands up for Christian values and beliefs. And when I say Christian values, that's not code for anything other than what the Bible explicitly teaches, just to be clear. But it's no surprise and it's no wonder that when people begin to abandon those convictions and begin to embrace and endorse perspectives and beliefs and lifestyles that the Bible explicitly calls out as being sinful, out of the created order, in defiance of God, it is no wonder that people who abandon those biblical perspectives for ones that are acceptable by the world become the standard of the world as to what a Christian ought to look like. See, this world is absolutely fine with you being a Christian so long as you don't claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God or that a belief in God is inherently necessary to be in right standing with Him. The world is fine with you believing in God so long as you don't actually promote what the Bible says about things that God has commanded. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling out in Luke chapter 6. He says you need to be careful because if everyone in the world is telling you how great you are, what it means is you've probably essentially abandoned faith It's what happened with the false prophets in the Old Testament, these people who were telling people with itching ears exactly what they wanted to hear and pretending that they were speaking on behalf of God, and the people ate it up. They loved it. See, you can choose that route, and many have. Or you can choose to hold on to God's Word and suffer momentary persecution. 2 Corinthians chapter 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, what Peter and Paul in their respective texts are saying is this, you can either choose temporary suffering and eternal peace or temporary peace and eternal suffering. It is a stark choice. It's a harsh one. If I'm honest, it's one that's uncomfortable to say. But it's the reality. It's what God has put in front of us. And understand what Paul is saying when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 17. This is a man who's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by poisonous snakes. He's been pushed down into ditches and had stones thrown on top of his body to the point where his persecutors thought he was dead. He's been beaten, he's been kicked out of cities, he's been treated improperly everywhere that he's gone, and he calls all of those things light, momentary afflictions. Now, is Paul there pretending that none of that stuff actually affected him or hurt him? No, of course not. But what he's saying is this, compared to the eternal weight of glory, compared to an eternity with God, an eternity of being face-to-face with Christ our Savior, an eternity of being in the presence of one who wipes away every tear, an eternity with the one who sent his own spirit of peace to indwell us, an eternity with brothers and sisters surrounding the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Compared to all of that, any suffering we would endure in this life can be seen as light. It's like the words of the old hymn, pardon for sin, and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine. 
with 10,000 beside. So Peter continues then in verse 15. He says, not only do you have this unity with Christ past suffering, this unity with Christ future glory, this unity with Christ presently, but he also says this, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is about the third time that Peter has brought up the same idea. Don't suffer like those who suffer for doing wrong. He goes, that's not the same kind of suffering. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you're suffering on behalf of Christ, you may need to remind yourself that you haven't, in the eyes of God, done anything wrong. And that reminder is important because when people do the wrong thing, they experience shame, they experience guilt for their actions. They rightly feel a sense of guilt for what, they're done, but, for what they've done. But Peter is saying, if you're suffering for Christ, don't let anyone put you to shame. Don't let anyone do it. And with the postmodern moral code that is in the process of being developed and is ever-changing, understand that that is actively, currently, what is happening culturally. A sense of shame is put onto those who would dare hold the biblical truth. And Peter is saying, you have nothing to be ashamed of. After all, verse 14, you are blessed of God. And the picture that Peter is painting is like this. He's saying in the very same way that a parent beams with pride when their child is put into a situation where he's tempted to do wrong and chooses to do right, and you as a parent are going, yes, something I said got through somehow. In the very same way, it's as if God in that moment is saying, yes, that's my boy, that's my girl. Don't let anybody ashamed you, put you into shame for holding to what God declares is true. And when you stand in the face of opposition, you are glorifying God. You are making much of Him. You are declaring to a watching world and to watching believers that He is infinitely more valuable than the approval of any person or any government. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He gives a quote, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, wait a minute. I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. You say that all the time. It's all you people talk about here. What in the world is this idea of judgment? Where is this coming from? I thought Jesus took all the wrath for my sin. I thought he gave me his righteousness. So what's all this about judgment being within the household of God? Well, the problem is that when we hear the word judgment, we inherently hear the word punishment. Our mind immediately goes to that idea. We reckon those two ideas as the same. But if you look at the broader context of what's happening in these couple of verses, it seems that what Peter actually has in mind is the idea of sorting and separating. So think of Matthew chapter 25, the discussion of the sheep and the goats, and this idea that there's a day coming in which the sheep, as they're described in Matthew 25, are those who know Jesus Christ and have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have intimately come to know Jesus Christ, are separated out from the goats, the pretenders, those who don't know Jesus, those who haven't actually trusted God. And what he's saying in this text is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
but God may allow suffering as a means of refining his own people. This idea is explained maybe most most explicitly in Zechariah chapter 13, beginning in verse 9, where the prophet says this, speaking on behalf of God, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. See, what reveals where our faith actually lies is where we turn in the moment of suffering. Have you ever thought about that? Wherever you tend to turn when things go bad and when life is hard and when unexpected difficulty comes in, whatever you turn to is your functional savior. So if your tendency is to turn to family or turn to a loved one or to explicitly and exclusively look to another person, understand that on some level or another that is God waving a big red flag in your face and telling you this person is acting as the functional savior of your life instead of me. If your tendency is to turn to substances or to turn to alcohol as a means of dimming or numbing out the pain of life, understand that that may be your functional savior. If your tendency is to sit with a pint of ice cream and watch whatever your favorite news network is, that may be your functional savior. See, whether it's something that we would see as silly or something that we would see as serious, wherever you turn reveals where your faith is placed. And what God says in Zechariah chapter 13 and what Peter, what, what Peter references here in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 is the same idea. He's saying, let the place that you turn be God himself so that in that moment of suffering, in that moment of refining, when everything is falling apart around you and you call out to God, you will inevitably hear his voice, be assured of your position in him, be reminded of your sonship or your daughterhood. You will hear him cry out, you are mine. So that your response can then be, you, Lord, are my God. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I quoted a few weeks ago, the great German pastor of the 1940s, said it this way, to endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. Or to paraphrase one commentator, what the world intended for the shame of God's people became for them a point of pride. You're telling me that I'm antiquated, silly, backward for believing in a book that was written 2,000 years ago? All that accusation does is remind me that my faith can only be in an unchanging word from God. That what the world intends for your suffering and to drive you away from belief in a unique twist of divine irony actually pushes you deeper into Christ. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Let's look at those words. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. For those who suffer, understand that you are suffering according to God's will. That's hard for us, and I'm not pretending it's not. And to the extent that it's incredibly hard for us to believe or understand that, you need to press into God all the more to ask him to give you clarity around those things because I'm just telling you that's not something that people typically can explain to you. What does it mean to suffer according to the will of God and to do it in this particular way? Well, here's my interpretation of this verse This is not the word of God. This is my interpretation of this verse. When you recognize that your suffering happens at the allowance of God, to the glory of God, and for your ultimate and eternal benefit, you are then freed to continue to do good because you know that God is ultimately for you. When you recognize that your suffering happens at the allowance of God to the glory of God and for your ultimate and eternal benefit, you are freed to continue to do good because you know God is ultimately for you. How does that work? Well, if God ultimately isn't for me, and if I don't trust his will, and if I can't be sure that he loves me, then when I experience suffering, I can either blame God or blame the world that God created. And it will inevitably lead me into bitterness and discontentedness and anger at my lot in life because, I'm, because everything I'm living for is here. So how dare I experience something difficult if this life is all there is? But if it's true that what God allows is for his ultimate glory and your ultimate benefit, then you are free to continue to do good because God is ultimately for you and you don't have to grow discontented, bitter, or angry because you're not just living for this life. You're not just living for here and now. So we started with John's recollection of Jesus' parting words to the disciples. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. But fortunately, Jesus didn't end there. In John 16, verse 33, he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart I have overcome the world. The world that seemingly defeats us is ultimately defeated by Christ. Well, how does that make us take heart? John gives us the answer, not in that chapter, but in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here's what he says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, if you've been born of God, you love God, and you love others who love God, right? That's the family of God. That's the church. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
And as John leaves us with those words for this morning, and as we're left with the instruction of Peter in this text, the reminder for us is this, when you put your trust and your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, the ultimate hope that you have, no matter what life has in store for you, is that Jesus wins. And in Jesus winning, you win alongside him. Not so that you can look at the world and go, see, I was right. Why didn't you listen to me? I was doing the thing the whole time. But so that in that moment, you can draw attention and glory and wonder and majesty to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only one deserving of the full devotion of our heart, the only one for whom we, for whom we would be willing to suffer the brutality of the cross as light momentary affliction. Faith in Jesus Christ is what overcomes the world. Not because of the amount of faith that we have, but because of the object in which our faith is placed. So be encouraged today that if you've been born of God, you have been granted the ability to love Him, to love one another, to continue to do good even when mistreated, and to endure mistreatment as light momentary affliction in the context of the weight of glory that's in front of us. So endure and press on. God has not forgotten you. God loves you. And he proves that in every difficult moment we walk through. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the words that we've read together this morning are heavy words and they're hard words. They're hard because they press against us. They press against our culture. They press against what we want to experience. And yet, God, I think if we're honest, they ring true with the human experience. The reason we have to be told not to be surprised when we suffer is because we're surprised when we suffer. And God, even in that, it's a reminder of the world that you originally created for us and the world that lies ahead of us. So God, we thank you that even in suffering, persecution works to remind us of the unity that we have in Christ's suffering, the unity that we have in your future glory and the unity that we have with you now so that we can continue to do good even when mistreated. And so God, we don't pretend to know what lies ahead. We've not been promised tomorrow. And we don't know what's gonna happen in the next day, let alone the next 10 years. But God, our hope this morning is that the spirit that you've given to indwell us in the words of the text that we've read this morning, the eternal word of God that we've read this morning, that the spirit would remind us in the moment of suffering or the moment of persecution of this text. That according to Luke 6, Jesus gave us these things and he sent the spirit to remind us of the words you've given us. And so though we may not need these words today, there will be a moment where we need them. So God, press them into our hearts and remind us of the things that we might be tempted to forget. 
And God, help us to live not as those who are defeated, not as those who are without hope, but as those who are confident because of the faith that you have given us that you, Jesus Christ, overcome the world. And therefore, we can be confident in the midst of light momentary affliction. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you are worthy of that kind of worship. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.